1 Samuel chapter number 11. If you'll find it with me this evening, 1 Samuel chapter 11. On these Sunday nights, we are looking at the life of King Saul in the Old Testament. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at chapter 8, where Israel demanded a king, and we called that a fatal request. We talked about that. And then last week, we were in chapter 9 and 10, the whole saga of how Saul came to be before Samuel, and we call that a hopeful beginning. And tonight we're at chapter 11, and I want to title this tonight, A Spiritual Victory, A Spiritual Victory. And for sake of time, I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but I need you to go home and read it tonight if you would. But 1 Samuel chapter 11, I'll read just the first three verses, and then we'll get into the message the Bible says that Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, Make a covenant with us and we will serve thee. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition will I make a covenant with you, that I may thrust out all your right eyes and lay up for reproach upon all Israel. And the elders of Jabesh said unto him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers unto all the coast of Israel. And then, if there be no man to save us, we will come out to thee. The nation of Israel has made the monumental decision to change their form of government from a theocracy to monarchy. We've already seen in past weeks that this was, this was a matter of political expedience. It was not the will of God. It was not a decision made after much prayer and fasting. It was driven by a desire to be more in tune with the nations that surrounded them. Samuel had made it clear to the elders that this is a monumental choice, that you are rejecting God and that it will have disastrous consequences and it will end in tyranny. But they have made up their mind that we want a king. And so we saw in chapter 10 how that God's choice for them was this young man named Saul. And in the long story of how it came to be that Saul stood before Samuel, there were many good character qualities that we could have emphasized in that story. He was submitted to his father in chasing after those donkeys. He was persistent in his duties three days. He was, he was humility and not seeking the kingship. But the only quality that the scripture gives us is his looks. He was tall and good looking. That's all that it tells us. And I think that scripture emphasizes that as if to say this is the best thing that can be said about him. Nothing said about his walk with God. Nothing said about his faith. Nothing about his distinctions as a man of God. And I contend that God gave them Saul in judgment. That he gave them a king very much like themselves. Saul has been privately anointed by Samuel and then publicly introduced, but there is some uncertainty in the kingdom still. 
Because after that scene in Gibeah at the end of chapter 10, Saul returns back to his family farm and just goes right back to work. I think that the people were excited to have a king, but, but they don't have a functioning king yet. They're still up in the air because it's not to the end of this chapter, chapter 11. Well, the Bible says that Saul is made king before the Lord in Gilgal. At the end of chapter 10, there are certain men. They are called men of Belial that do not accept Saul. They don't believe that he has what it's going to take, and they openly derided him. That, that's the situation that we are in. But in chapter 11, we are brought into a scene, a crisis that is going to thrust, force Saul into a leadership role. He is going to be tested in this chapter and his victory is going to solidify his standing before the people and give them confidence, hey, this is our king. Now, if you've been here the last two weeks, you know that I have had nothing good to say about Saul up to this point. I think that I have been fair, but I think that I have been a little rough on him. I don't think there's a lot of good things to say about Saul. And as we go through his life, I think that he will demonstrate, he will prove me right, that he has more bad qualities than he does good qualities. So when I come to this chapter, I admit to you that I come to it with a little bit of bias. I'm looking for his weaknesses. But that's not fair. It's not fair for me to read chapter 11 in light of the rest of the book. I need to read chapter 11 in light of chapter 11 to give him a fair shake. And so I want to be fair with Saul. And when I judge Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 11 and just chapter 11, I have to say that he passes the test with flying he shows remarkable character in this chapter. And so I do want to give him credit where credit is due. However, I will say that if all that we had was this chapter, his story would have turned out a lot differently. Unfortunately, in chapter 11, it is the high point of his kingdom. This is his finest moment in this chapter, which tells you that beyond this, it is all downhill. The character traits that, that you could pick out in this chapter are going to disappear in the next chapter, and you'll never see them again. So I want to give Saul his due for now. For now. Tonight. Tonight. Good king. Good beginnings. This could be a good thing. Now, in order to understand chapter 11 without reading it, I, I need to give you a little bit of historical background. The problem in this chapter is there is a terrorist by the name of Nahash. He's been terrorizing some of the children on the east side of the Jordan River. And the situation has suddenly gone from bad to worse. Nahash was the king of the Ammonites. They were a cruel people with a long history of oppressing the children of Israel. He is right now, he is right now at the city of Jabesh-Gilead and he has the city surrounded. All the men are in there. And his terms of surrender is to submit to having your right eye put out. You can fight to the death or you can surrender to these horrible 
conditions. It is believed that this is not Nahash's first attack. A lot of commentators believe that Nahash has actually been on a campaign of terror to all of the tribes, the two and a half tribes on the other side of the Jordan, and they has these men holed up in Jabesh Galilee, Gilead for, for kind of like a last stand. In fact, if you'll look one page over at chapter 12 and verse 12, Samuel is reciting for them what happened in chapter 8. And he said, when ye saw that Nahash the king of the children of Ammon came against you, ye said unto me, Nay, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. So Samuel says that Nahash was in your mind back in chapter 8 when you asked me for a king. So Nahash has been a problem for a while now. And we need to get a little bit of historical background so, so we understand this. Nahash is an Ammonite. So who are the Ammonites who are oppressing the children of Israel? Ammon was one of the sons of Lot by his incestuous relationship with his daughters in Genesis 19. You remember that story? And, and, and Moab was the other son. So the Ammonites and the Moabites, they're blood brothers is what they are. And then, then there, is, there is a relationship between the Israelites and the Ammonites because Abraham, Lot was Abraham's nephew. And the Ammonites, they, they would be enemies of Israel for a very long time. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, the Ammonites would not let them pass through the land. In the book of Judges, the Ammonites and the Moabites, they team up to oppress the children of Israel. They are a thorn in their flesh. In Judges chapter 11, you might remember that Jephthah, that judge who makes rash vows. He had to raise up an army to fight against them. The Ammonites, the Ammonites were claiming some land that did not belong to them. And Jephthah had to raise up an army to go against them. In the book of Amos, there is a prophecy against them in Amos 1 and verse 13. And there's a word there that tells you the character, the cruel character of there. And the Bible says, for three transgressions of the children of Ammon and for four, I'll not turn away the punishment thereof because they have ripped up the women with child of Gilead that they might enlarge their border. They are cruel, vicious, violent, terroristic type of people. So now Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, he has laid siege to the city Jabesh Gilead, and there is some history there too. In the book of Judges, there is a story in Judges chapter 19 about a Levite that was traveling through the land with his concubine, and he came to the city of Gibeah one night. He didn't have any place to stay. Gibeah belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. That would be the city that one day Saul would come from years later. And an old man in Gibeah invites the Levite and his concubine to spend the night with him and says that I will take care of you. But while they are sleeping that night, there are some men that come banging on the door and they tell the Lord of the house to send the Levite out so that they could have relations with him. They are wicked, wicked men. And the man says, I, I, I don't do that. It's a wicked thing. He says, I will send his concubine and my daughter out. Do what you will with them, but not to the Levite. And so he does that. They send the concubine out and those men violate her so violently that she dies that night. 
Well, the next morning the Levite gets up and he finds his concubine on the doorsteps dead. And it's a horrible thing. And in Judges 19, that Levite cuts her corpse into 12 pieces and sends it throughout the land of Israel as a testimony of what has happened at the hand of the men of Benjamin. So in Judges chapter 20, Israel, the nation, rises up against this tribe. 400,000 men, the largest army ever raised by Israel, surround the city of Gibeah and demand that those men be given up. The Benjaminites, for some reason, say, we're not giving those men up. In fact, we're going to raise our own army, and we're going to fight against you. Tens of thousands of men die, and in the battle that ensued, all the women and children of the tribe of Benjamin are killed, all of the men except 600 men that flee to the mountains for four months, and they are spared. And the tribe of Benjamin is almost completely obliterated except for 600 men, the entire tribe. It's down to just 600 men. Well, in the next chapter in Judges 21, I'm going somewhere. The men of Israel said, we're not going to allow our daughters to marry the men of the Benjaminites. And then they began to inquire, was there any cities that did not send men to come help us fight against this evil that Benjamin has wrought upon their land? And they discovered, lo and behold, the men of Jabesh Gilead, they had not come to help fight. So, in Judges chapter 21, they send 12,000 men to Jabesh Gilead and they completely wipe the town out. In fact, everyone is killed of that city except 400 virgins. And then they make peace with the tribe of Benjamin. And since the tribe of Benjamin have no women to repopulate the city, they take the 400 virgins from Jabesh Gilead and they send them to the men of Benjamin so that they can take them as wives and repopulate the city. Now that's a strange story, isn't it? But there is a connection, there is a connection here between the tribe of Benjamin and the city of Jabesh Gilead. And Saul is of the tribe of Benjamin. He lives in Gibeah, so he has some connection to Jabesh Gilead, which is now under siege. And in this story, what I want to do tonight is I want to focus on the men of Jabesh Gilead. There's a lot of different ways, a lot of different things to preach on in this story. But I want to focus just on these men, men who are under siege, men who have a powerful enemy against them, and men who are going to look to Saul for help. The book of the chapter deals with Saul and his leadership and how he has an army marshaled around him, and that's a wonderful thing. But I'm, but I'm interested in the men of Jabesh Gilead and the spiritual victory that they win. So four headings tonight. Are you with me? First of all, I, I want to talk about the crisis of, of Jabesh. The crisis of Jabesh. So, 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 the, so the, the chapter opens with the men of Gibeah. They are under siege by Nahash. And what Nahash wants to do to these men, I will tell you, is the same thing that the world wants to do to you. 
Nahash has a deep-seated animosity in his heart against them. He harbors a grace that goes back hundreds of years, and he wants to expand his borders for sure, but he also wants to humiliate the people of God, and really humiliation will be sweeter to him than conquest. So he wants to disable the men. When the men of Jabesh, they asked for peace. Here's the terms. Agree to have your right eye gouged out. Well, that's a cruel thing. That's a, that's a heinous thing to do. But the Ammonites have a history of cruelty. Now, the reason why he specified the right eye is because they say that it was common in those days for fighting men to hold the shield in their left hand and the spear or the sword in their right hand to fight. And if you're holding the shield in your left arm, your left hand, and you held it up close to your face, then, then you're going to cover up your left eye. You're basically fighting with, with, with one eye is what you're doing. You're, you're trying to c cover as much as you can. And so by putting out the right eye, he's putting out the fighting eye. He, he, is, he is crippling them for future battle is what he's doing. He, he is making it where they are disabled and they're not going to be able to wage warfare anymore. And I would have you to know that that is the mentality of the world against the people of God. It wants to disable you from serving God. The world, the world will, will cripple you in, in one area of your life that makes you ineffective in other areas of your life. This world has a weakening effect upon the Christian and, and you'll not be strong for the battle if you allow the enemy to take out your right eye. The world will offer you terms of peace and terms of surrender, but it's gonna make it possible for you to rise up and never fight again wants to disable them. But then he wants to disgrace them. If you notice the last part of verse number th two, and lay it for a reproach upon all Israel. He just wants the territory. He wants to expand his borders. He wants the taxes, the revenue that comes along with that. But what he really wants to do is he wants to rub their nose in the defeat. He even gives them seven days for a spy. Yeah, I'll give you seven days. Go send word out to all of Israel and see if somebody will come to your help because, because he knows he has the upper hand. If you can raise an army, I'll whip them too. If you can't raise an army, everybody knows, well, at least I gave you a fighting chance. So, so call your brethren, see if you can get them to come and help you. He wants all of Israel to know what he's doing and he wants them to feel their helplessness and their distress. He wants to disgrace them. That, that again is the world. When a Christian falls, the world doesn't encourage him. They don't try to pick him back up. They don't have any kind words for him. You know, when you sin, here's what the devil will tell you. He'll tell you you're defeated. You're done, you're washed up, you'll never get back in the battle. God will never use you again. You're not worthy. And so many believers live in shame and disgrace for their sin. And there is shame and disgrace. But I'm glad that you can find forgiveness in Jesus Christ and have honor again. But the devil wants to bring reproach to the name of Christ through you. And he wants you to have a bad testimony and live in disgrace. He wants to disable them and disgrace them. And he wants to destroy them. You think the world is your friend. The world under the control of Satan 
seeks to destroy everything good in your life. Well, to destroy your testimony, destroy your marriage and your home and your children. The world try to destroy this church. These young people on this platform tonight singing, the world hates that. That, that. that makes the devil mad. The devil cheers when a marriage falls apart. And the devil cheers when a child goes astray. And the devil goes when a church has problems and dies. And I want to remind you tonight that you and I have a very real enemy. And it's not flesh and blood, but it's the devil who operates in the system of this world. And you ought not fight against other people. You ought to fight against this world because it's fighting against you. So there is the crisis of Jabesh. But then I want you to see the compromise of Jabesh. Now, 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 I wasn't there. And it's impossible for us to know how dire the situation was, but it does seem to be rather dire. But I want you to read verse 1 with me. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said unto Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve thee. It strikes me that the very first thing, right out of the gate, that the men of Jabesh Gilead want to make a treaty with Nahash and even offer, volunteer. I mean, volunteer to be servants if you will let us live. I mean, I mean instead of putting up a fight, and maybe they already had, I don't know, but they seem eager to make a peace treaty and let's just live peaceably together. I know that you're the enemy of God and I know that you hate us and I know that you hate God, but could we be friends? Again, I wasn't there. I don't want to misread the situation, but these men seem to sell out rather quickly. I mean, they haven't even made any demands. No, they, they, they volunteer. And if their families are with them, they have just sold their families out to the enemy. Huh? That, that's what I'm reading. And even if that is not the case, then it sure is the case today. Christians selling out to the world to try to make peace with the world. I know you're the world and I know that you hate God and you hate Christianity and I know that you hate the Bible. How about we get along and be friends? Huh? Yeah, somebody help me just a little bit. Since when, since when did the people of God want to be together with people that hate God? Since when did the people of God enjoy the company of heathen and people that despise God? Why, why, why do you want to get together and fellowship with somebody that doesn't care anything about your godly lifestyle? Well, preacher, I, I just think we ought to just all get along with everybody. I just think we ought to love everybody and love the world so maybe we can win them. That's going to work out for you about as good as it did for these men right here. Amen. Somebody said, well, what are they supposed to do? I mean, the enemy has them surrounded. Do you know what is better than being crippled and disabled and, and, and joined up to the world spiritually? Do you know what's better than that? Dying. Amen. Amen. Dying. I mean, if the choice is to fight 
to the death or be slaves with my right eye out? Wouldn't a true man of God say that I might die on the battlefield, but I will not live as a servant? If I can't live as a free man, it's not worth living. By the way, that's what our nation was built on right there. Fighting men, real men. Give me liberty or give me death. Dying is not the worst thing that happened to you. Huh? Look at verse 3. The elder to Jabesh said unto him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers unto all the coast of Israel. And then, if there be no man to save us, we will come out to thee. Now, for sure, they're buying time with Nahash. I, I understand that. And Nahash agrees to a seven day respite. But do you see how resigned and how defeated they already are? For one thing, you don't need seven days to make up your mind if you're going to live free or die. Again, I know, I know it is a ploy to buy time. I, I understand that. But I hope that you and I don't need seven days to develop some courage and some conviction when the enemy comes around us and try to decide what we're going to do. How long halt ye between the two opinions? Are you going to serve God or Bell? But make up your mind already. Huh? You know, there are some things you don't even have to pray about. Amen. You don't have to pray about living holy and having gotten the conduct in your life. I'm telling you, when you make up your mind that I'm going to live for God, there's nothing else to talk about. There's no committee that needs to meet. There's no debate that needs to be held. God, give us some narrow-minded, hard-headed Christians who will say that my mind is made up. You don't, you don't, you don't even have to pray about it. I don't, need, I don't need seven days to decide if I'm going to cave to the enemy without a fight. And, and look at this, look at this too. Now, now again, I, I don't mean to just pick them to pieces, but, but look at verse three again. Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers into all the coast of Israel and then, watch this, if there be no man to save us, we will come out to thee. Now, I don't mean to read between the lines. That don't sound very courageous to me. I don't blame them for calling out for help. But if help doesn't come, you might just have to fight your battle and die. Huh? I know that this was many years prior. I know. But remember, this is the city that wouldn't send any fighting men to stand against Benjamin. Courage doesn't seem to be in their blood. They wouldn't send anybody to help, but now when they need help, their first thought is we need a man to save us. Huh? Listen, there is an attack in our society against manhood and manliness. But you don't want to live in a world where all the men are effeminate and emasculated. You don't want to live in that world. And just put me down for toxic masculinity. I am all for that. Huh? And, 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 and the world wants feminine men and, and emasculated men and sissified men, but weak men make for weak homes and weak homes make for weak churches and weak churches makes for a weak nation. God, give us some men who will rise up and say, Nahash, if you want my right eye, come and get it. Just need some men, need some men. 
You say, well, what could they have done? Well, they could have prayed. They could have cried out to God. I mean, it'd be more honorable to die fighting than to live serving the enemy the rest of your life. They, they just seem so, so quick. And there needs to be a call for some men to step forward and say that I am not going to let somebody do my praying for me. I'm not going to let somebody do my fighting for me. We have a generation of weakness that, is, that we are devoid of the power of God. Why don't we be strong in the Lord and in the power of his mind and be strong in faith and be strong in convictions and be strong in prayer and be strong in grace. The compromise of Jabesh. But then, and there is the champion of Jabesh. And I want to show you what happened to these men in verse 4. In verse 4. Then came the messengers to Gibeah of Saul and told the tidings in the ears of the people, and all the people lifted up their voices and wept. During Jabesh Gilead, they come to Gibeah, that's where Saul's at. He's been anointed, and they're still up in this turmoil. There's no test yet. Hasn't a officiated as king. But, but, here, but here's what I, what I found out in, in my research. They, they, they are in Jabesh and they come to Gibeah, the home of Saul, which from all indications that I can find, and Bible maps are a little bit across the board on this, it's about 40 miles away. They come to Saul, a fleshly king, for help. Do you know what city lies between Jabesh and Gibeah. It's the city of Ramah. Do you know who lives in Ramah? Samuel. The man of God. So for some reason, for some reason, they just go around that city. They just bypass. And maybe Samuel was on a circuit. I don't know. But for some reason, they don't go to the man of God. They go to Saul. In the story that follows, you'll have to read it. Same, Saul comes out of the field. He hears about the situation and he takes charge. And I will tell you that for everything that you learn about Saul in subsequent chapters, he becomes a champion of the people in this crisis. If he could have captured this moment and made his standard mode of operation, he would have went down as a great king. But just because you have a victory today doesn't mean you have a victory tomorrow. Amen. Just because you stand today doesn't mean that you're going to stand tomorrow. If you don't have your heart right with God, you might stand today, but tomorrow you will fall flat on your face. Yes, success today does not mean success tomorrow. He responds with courage and strength, and I wish that would be his pattern, but it's not. He takes an oxen, he cuts the oxen up, and he sends the pieces out to Israel. That, that's a strong message. And basically says that if you don't come and join us, we're going to do this to your oxen. And he did that probably 
probably harking back to the time when that Levite had cut up his concubine and sent her out into the nation. And he's basically saying to the people of Israel that we have a serious situation on our hands and you need to come together and fight. And the people rose to the challenge and 300,000 men came to Gibeah ready to fight. And so I'm giving him his due. He showed courage. There is decisiveness. There is leadership. And I wish that this was the Saul that we would always see. But for tonight, for tonight, Saul is the hero. And here's the reason why. Look at verse number six. When the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard these tidings, and his anger was kindled greatly. Everything in this chapter leads up to that. That's the pivotal moment. When the Spirit of God came upon him and empowered him to be the leader that he needs to be. Now please understand, that doesn't mean that he just got saved. That doesn't mean that he's sanctified now. That doesn't mean that all of a sudden overnight he becomes a very spiritual man of God. It doesn't mean that. It means that the Spirit of God empowers him to become the leader that he needs to be. I'll give you one thought, one note, and I'm moving to my last part tonight where I really wanted to get to. All throughout the Judges read about the Spirit of God moving upon men. Othniel and Samson and Gideon, these judges, the Spirit of God came upon these men. And we understand that's not the indwelling Spirit of God that we experience in the New Testament. The Spirit of God moved upon them and powered them, and it's a temporary move. There is one difference, though, in Saul and the rest of these men. Nearly every time when the judges says that the Spirit of God came upon these men, the, the word for God is Jehovah. It is Jehovah God, the God of their covenant. There's another word for God in the Old Testament, Elohim. It's a more general word. In fact, sometimes the word Elohim can even refer to a false God. You understand it by the context. And in the case of Balaam and Saul, it's not the spirit of Jehovah. It's Elohim that comes upon him. I don't know what to make of that, but that is the case. But the Spirit of God comes upon Saul and he becomes their champion. I don't have time to analyze his leadership, but there is nothing bad that can be said about Saul in this chapter. This is the brightest moment in his kingship. So we have the crisis of Jabesh, the compromise of Jabesh, and we have the champion of Jabesh. But tonight I want you to see the courage of Jabesh. And I hope that I've not painted the picture unfairly, but the men of Jabesh are not known for their courage. They failed to fight with their brethren against Benjamin. They are so quick to offer a compromise to Nahash. They're not sure if they want to live or die. They've got to have somebody come and save them. And history is not kind to them. Well, there's a postscript to the story. And I want you to go to 1 Samuel chapter 31, last chapter of 1 Samuel. And I'm taking you to the very last chapter in Saul's life. In the last chapter, he's in a battle with the Philistines. And in this battle, Saul and his three sons, including Jonathan, are killed in this battle. Saul actually commits suicide in verse number 3 and Verse, or verse, number four, verse number three, four, and five. He commits suicide instead of falling in the hands of the Philistines. 
And when the Philistines heard about it, they came and they got the body of Saul. And they cut his head off. And they sent his head all throughout the land of Philistia. And then they took his body. And they nailed his body to a wall in Bethsham, one of their chief cities. And they desecrated Saul. And it became a public spectacle to them. Look, look at verse number 10. They put the armor in the house of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. I want you to think about this. What a disgrace. For all of the character flaws that we will see in the life of Saul, he was their king. He was their king. This is a disgrace upon the nation of Israel. And there's one group of men that says, we're not going to let this stand. Look at it. Look at verse 11. And when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard of that which the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose. And went at night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan and came to Jabesh and burnt them there. And they took their bones and buried them under a tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. The men of Jabesh Gilead said there was a time when we were in dire trouble. We could not save ourselves. We had to have somebody come help us. <clears throat> and we remember when Saul came and Saul became our champion and, and, and Saul became our deliverer and we are grateful for somebody that helped us when we could not help ourselves and that gratitude has changed their heart and they become valiant men, valiant men. And tonight you may be a man of Jabesh. Not a lot of courage. Not a lot of conviction. And to be honest with you, not a whole lot of valor in your past. Been so quick to strike a deal with the enemy. You never, never could solve your own problems. Always ran to a fleshly man to save you. And the world has mocked you. And the enemy has tried, threatened to put out your right eye. And, and you waffle, do, do I want to live crippled or do I, do I just want to die? You trace the history of these men of Jabesh up to this point. There's not one positive thing that you can say about them. And that even could be your history. But if you'll remember what Jesus did for you. If you remember what he did for you on the cross of Calvary. And he did more for you than what Saul did for these men. And what it ought to do is it ought to fill our heart with thankfulness and gratefulness. And it will, it will change your heart is what it is. You may have not had much courage heretofore. You may have not had much conviction heretofore. You may have not taken much of a stand heretofore, but you can become a man of conviction and a man of courage right now, right yes. now. Men of valor. They ended up doing one of the most valiant things ever recorded in all of the Old Testament. This one deed of bravery changes the outlook of their lives. And for me, this is the spiritual victory of Jabesh, not the victory in chapter 11. That's a military victory. But if you can get victory over the fear and the dread and the compromise in your heart, that's a greater victory than any victory you'll ever win. Amen. Amen. 
when you can have victory over your own spirit. In fact, quickly, quickly, 2 Samuel chapter 2, chapter 2. I'm done, I'm done. This is David. Verse 4. The men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. They told David, saying that the men of Jabesh-Gilead were they that buried Saul. David sent messengers unto the men of Jabesh Gilead and said unto them, Blessed be of the Lord, that you showed this kindness unto your Lord, even unto Saul, and buried him. And now the Lord showed kindness and truth unto you, and I also will requite you this kindness, because you have done this thing. Therefore now let your hands be strengthened, and be ye valiant. From shame to blessing, from disgrace to blessing, God has changed the hearts of these men and he changes their character and David the king gives a blessing to them and to their family. You may have failed in the past, but you can stand tonight as a man of God. The past does not have to define you. God can turn it around and may God help every one of us to stand up. Raise up men, men of Jabesh. Not the old Jabesh, but the renewed Jabesh. Men that are valiant men.